My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host of a Minor Detail Radio podcast, where the minor details of every story matter. Each week, I talk to Maryland newsmakers, from elected officials, journalists, political candidates, to policy wonks and everyday Marylanders. A Minor Detail podcast is the fusion between Maryland news and politics. Real people, real stories, honest conversation. You can also follow us on the web at aminordetail.com. Sit back, relax, and have fun. Right, everybody. Happy Monday, and uh, let's see. Did we survive the hurricane? I think we did. Um, I, I, you know, look, it's, it's a tragic situation on the Carolinas. I've had friends um, had to to uproot their families for the last week and get the heck out of town. But I'm, you know, look, I I don't expect much from the federal government uh, in their response to this, but I am hopeful that. Uh, we, we can recover. And I saw some real acts of humanity on uh, the news coverage and reading uh, multiple articles, but to all the first responders uh, out there and really in any community, my hat goes off to them um, because they are the unsung heroes. So um, tonight is an interest, interesting interview and a story, and there's sort of a Genesis behind how all of this came together. Um, Mark and I really don't know each other. And, and by the way, my guest tonight is Mark McLaurin. He is the director of political and legislative affairs for the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union Local 500. And so he and I have mixed it up before on Twitter and probably in some other places. And we really don't know each other at all. And we've we've gone toe to toe. And I, I am deadly convinced by the end of this this hour-long conversation he and i will become probably pretty good friends and will (laughs) recognize that we agree on much more than we disagree and plus we have a close mutual friend in common lynn foxwell i reached out to lynn and i said hey tell me about mark you know i you know we've kind of mixed it up on twitter (laughs) a little bit and he said oh yeah he goes listen um i think you and mark would get along really well and he's actually a really good guy and i'm like well, hell, I'm going to reach out to him and see if he's going to come on. Mark, you're a stand-up guy for, for agreeing to come on and, and having a discussion Absolutely. with me. And I, I, I appreciate Thanks. it. And, I, and like me. I said, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure we're going to come to uh, a consensus on many issues after we have a conversation. I hope so. I hope yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, Len is, a great, Len is a great guy. Well, you know why – for many reasons, I, I agree with you that Lynn is a tremendous guy, but he has taken on not only in his position as chief of staff with Comptroller Peter Francho, Lynn is not afraid to bring it to what I think you and I both know as this Annapolis swamp. It is a swampy. Jeez, yeah. And I think Lynn has really called out some of the individuals who continue to push the standard um, establishment politics, and if there's anything that I can't stand, is establishment politics anywhere. And I've always been sort of a contrarian. Nobody can pinpoint me and my positions, and that's okay because I really want to do what I'm trying to do is just have a conversation and get out um, some information from all sides. And um, tonight, that's my goal is to talk to you 
I want to learn a little bit more about what SEIU is doing, um, some of your political activism, and what your take is on politics at the local level, statewide here in Mm -hmm. Maryland, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about the national circus of politics. So, um, Mark, welcome to the show. It's a a first time. So let's talk about you. What? Um, tell me about sure. yourself. What do you do, and um, what's your background in, and uh, uh, what uh, what's going on in life? Wow, uh, long story. Well, um, I think. Uh, well, for as for what I do now, um, I am a political and legislative de- director for SEIU Local 500, which is the largest SEIU local um, in the state of Maryland, and it's an interesting. It's had an interesting metamorphosis as a local. Um, it started out as kind of centered in Montgomery County, and probably 95% of its members were um, were employees of the Montgomery County Public School System, and it tended to be really parochially focused on um, on Montgomery County and public schools employees. But now it's blossomed and grown in the past eight to ten years to where it's almost tripled in size, and probably less than half of our members now are MCPS members, and so we represent. Uh, child care providers, home-based child care providers all across the state. We represent adjunct faculty at every single school in Washington, D.C., except for Catholic University, and also uh, the adjunct faculty at Maryland Institute College of Art um, uh, and uh, and uh, Goucher College and uh, Montgomery College, um, and there are a couple others that I'm missing, I'm sure, McDaniel College. Mm. Um, and so we represent adjunct faculty at all those places. And we also represent some um, developmental disability providers uh, across the state. Um, and last but certainly not least, we represent um, several D.C. nonprofit members. So we represent the employees at Planned Parenthood, at, um, at Media Matters. Um, I don't want to name them all because I'll forget some. But so, so we have a really diverse membership and a very – um, as I said, we're the largest local in the state, and so our focus has gone from kind of really being centered in Montgomery County to being a statewide local, and so we tend to get involved in races um, all across the state from Eastern Shore to Western Maryland, and so it makes for you know, a fun job as the political director um, representing my members' interests across the state. It's, it's, you know, I always say it's not work if you really love what you do, and I, I love my job. Yeah, amen to that. I. Anybody who gets into a job who is passionate about it, um, going to work each day, getting up those early mornings, and I know that being a guy that's in politics, Mark, you have a lot of those early morning <laughs> breakfasts, um, and, yeah. and it's like uh, 6 o'clock or it's 5.30, and I don't know what part of the state you live in, but you know Montgomery County, we're somewhat lucky that um, I can get to Baltimore from my house here in, um, in Gaithersburg probably about in an hour's time. Um, but right. you know, I, up to Western Maryland, where I grew up. Yeah. If you go around the beltway or on six ninety five, I was over in Baltimore County today and there's always congestion. There's always some sort of traffic backup. And I take 29 and then I take the ICC 200 over into mm-hmm. uh, 370, which takes you down 270. And then of course you get stuck in, 270 traffic, but we could talk about traffic yes. um, all yes. day long. But so, sure. you know, let's break this down. Mark, what, what is, mm-hmm. for people who are listening, and most of us know what the function of a, of a public sector and even a private sector union does, but mm-hmm. in the very, 
But mm-hmm. let's just go back to the basics, Mark. What is a union? What does it do, sure. and what who what kind of people does it help? So it's it's a, a union is a <clears throat> excuse me a collective of workers who have band together and decided that you know that there is unity and that and that there's strength in their numbers and in coming together. Um, primarily, of course, to bargain with their employers, because as we know, the, in, in, in just about every state is an at-will employment state. So um, it's hard as an individual employee to protest unfair treatment or unfair wages or discrimination or any other workplace uh, evil. It's hard to confront that as one person because they can pick you off one by one you're a troublemaker, you're fired, I'll get somebody else. But but so labor unions have, on an individual basis, kind of unified workers together to say, no, you know, we all stand for each other. And one of the underlying mottos is an injury to one is an injury to all. So unions are kind of a way to harness the strength of the workforce in particular workplaces. And so um, and so that's individually. And then, of course, collectively on a broader scale, uh, unions like SEIU um, have have recognized that our members have interests outside of the workplace. So in addition to the great work that I think that we do for members in the workplace, fighting to make sure that they're treated fairly, that any uh, adverse actions are adjudicated properly, that, you know, that, that they are paid, compensated fairly or as fairly as they can be. Um, we recognize that they also have lives outside of the workplace, and we try to make the, the kind of the overall landscape uh, a more fair and just place for folks to live in. And so we have put hundreds of thousands of dollars into the fight for marriage equality and the fight to abolish the death penalty and and for a $15 minimum wage, even though right now I don't think I have any members that make under $15. But we take that fight because we know that our members have family members that make less than $15 an hour. And it really is a matter of, of economic justice for folks. And so we take on a whole lot of issues that are outside the direct purview of the workplace, but certainly impact our members' lives just as much. Let's, let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say that uh, here in the state of Maryland or over in Northern Virginia, some wonderful mm-hmm. folks who work for David Trone's company, Total Wine and More, they wanted to start mm-hmm. a union. And, of course, mm-hmm. David Trone owns a, um, a massive private liquor retailer. And he, he's yep. a distributor, and he owns Total Wine and More um, with his brother. And mm-hmm. his 6,500 employees said, hey, okay, we, we have this thing. We work for this company. We want to start a union. What would be that process, mm-hmm. Mark? How do they get that off the ground? So what would what would happen is, and I'm not sure, there's there are jurisdictional questions. I don't know whether they would be Teamsters or UFCW or you know, because different unions have different jurisdictions. But uh, you know, what what really would happen is they would reach out to um, to someone at the union, say the Teamsters, hypothetically, if the Teamsters were if that were the place that was appropriate for them to belong to, they would reach out to the Teamsters. The Teamsters would send in an organizing team to talk to the employees, and then what would happen is you need to get uh, either uh, a majority of cards signed or or you go through the NLRB and call for a vote. And so as long as one more member um, – and I'm not, the, I'm not the organizing guy, so 
I may not have this exactly right, but as far as I as far as I understand, there's a threshold number of cards that need to be signed to indicate an interest in joining a union. And then that if you receive that requisite number, and it may be, don't quote me, but I think it's 30%. If you get 30% of the workforce to indicate an interest in joining a union, then the NLRB triggers an election. And then, and then the members vote, um, the employees vote about whether they want to join, join a union or not. And then it's just a majority vote, you know, like so whoever, you know, and the, the, the questions, the question, the ballot for employees will look like, do you want to join a union? Yes or no. If you do want to join a union, do you want to join the Teamsters? Or, you know, if some other union has intervened and is competing to be elected instead of the Teamsters, then they would be on the ballot too. But it really is ultimately a democratic process and it's up to the workers to decide if that's what they want. And the same is true in the public sector. That's why it's so, um, so frustrating to hear people say that, you know, to say that somehow belonging to a union or joining a union is somehow undemocratic. And it's actually the opposite. It's the electing of uh, against, you know, pretty, you know, employers can be pretty intimidating. And so for workers to join together in the face of fear of reprisals and losing their jobs to form a union, I think it demonstrates some of the most courageous behavior that I've seen in my professional life. No, it's basically an intermediary, and the, the mm-hmm. union, um, of course, gives uh, their workers the power to negotiate. Um, you talked about working conditions, um, collective bargaining, mm-hmm. um, and it, it seems like a fairly um, straightforward process. It's systematic. Um, when when X occurs, Y is triggered, and then um, you right. go through the National Labor Relations Board, and so the right. process is pretty fairly uh, straightforward. And I know here Absolutely. where we live, um, I live in Montgomery County, and of course, many mm-hmm. of the teachers belong to, there's a common misconception, and I want to talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit later, but there's a common misconception mm-hmm. in the state of Maryland that um, sometimes it's often referred to as a teacher's union, but instead it's a association. Many, many, right. I know up in, where I grew up in Washington County, they did not have a union per se, but instead they had an association and a membership where you join in and then they represent you. If you ever have any issues with employment, then the association will come in and you pay a certain amount of, um, you, you opt in and it, you, know, you get certain benefits, legal representation and whatnot. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Um uh yeah, so that's the yeah, that's the teachers the teacher association which is, you know, obviously different from the from, you know, SEIU and our members, but yeah, yeah, they are they're an association. So, Mark as um SEIU and the the local 500 as its political director, how long have you been in this job and how does someone um, grow into that role, or what is the, I guess, what is the curriculum for that role, and the kind of the resume that someone would need to to become a political director for a local union? Well, I think it really is about having an, a passion for working people and an interest in in politics and background in education in politics. I went to college for poli sci. You know, I've been involved in politics. I came out of college and worked for Senator Barbara Mikulski and learned everything I could at her knee. Um, and then went on to um, to to work in various advocacy roles at nonprofits in New York and in Maryland, um, and and so I would say you know the first prerequisite is you have to have a real passion 
for working people and for fighting for the interests of working people, because it's not always easy. You're not always going to, I mean, people talk about how much money unions have, but we don't have anything compared to our corporate, uh, to the folks that we often fight against. So you're often outnumbered in terms of, uh, in terms of the financial resources that you have, although SEIU is better resourced than most, but we're often outnumbered in that respect. You really have to have a passion for the job and also a real interest in politics and in, 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 uh, and, and running campaigns. I mean, I've been involved in campaigns, licking envelopes since I was eight or nine years old. So it's just, a, it's a natural extension for me. And it's the ability to combine kind of something I'm passionate about with something I feel fairly knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about, and something that I've gained experience in doing, namely electoral campaigns. When you sit down, Mark, and decide the political agenda for your union and what your priorities are, I'm sure you bring mm-hmm. your executive director to the table, communications, um, organizing, every, there's mm-hmm. every sort of tentacle to developing a political agenda. But when you sit at a table mm-hmm. with... SEIU staff, what is that process like? Do you take on specific causes and say, okay, we're going to address these three big causes in the upcoming election, and then we're also going to support our our state delegate and state senate candidates in these types of causes? Sure. How's that agenda drafted? Well, you know, as much as I as much as as a staff member, I I I would emphasize the importance of having good and competent staff. You you left out the most important component of that, and that is our membership. Our membership absolutely decides our priorities, both our legislative priorities. There's not a single – Mark McLaurin doesn't endorse anybody for anything, you know, except as a person, you know. But, I mean, when Local right. 500 puts boots on the ground for a candidate, when Local 500 decides to champion an issue – when Local 500 writes a check to a political action committee or to uh, an aspiring candidate, that is at the request and at the behest of the members who have decided that that's an issue that they want to pursue, who have decided that this is a candidate that they want to support. And so I see my role as just kind of facilitating their wishes and hopefully kind of that I've been here long enough that they trust my judgment in that you know, if they're going way down the wrong way on something, you know, something that's either never going to happen or a candidate that's never going to win, <laughs> I'm usually able to 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 kind of uh, to steer them in another direction. But at the end of the day, it really is our members, and and I think that's a large part of the power that we've amassed, um, especially in the state of Maryland, is that this is SEIU Local 500 is is authentically a member-driven enterprise, and so. People know, you can ask around Montgomery County that one of the most valued endorsements to have in any race is SEIU 500, especially in Montgomery County. And it's not because Mark is so smart or David, our executive director, is such a great guy or Merle Katita, our president, is such an inspiring leader. We, our endorsement is valued so much because they know that we will put boots on the ground, we will get on the doors for them. We will staff their campaigns, and we will get them the resources that they need to get over the top. So that, you know, and, and again, at the end of the day, it really is our membership. I mean, staff um, staff's role is really to facilitate the wishes of the members. Obviously, I do this full time, and they don't. They are 
paraeducators and adjunct faculty and bus drivers and, and building and janitorial workers, you know, they don't do this full time. So they trust our, our, our judgment on the staff level, you know, on the art of the possible and why, and, and, and take our advice on, you know, which issues may move or not move. But at the end of the day, this really is a member driven exercise. And it's something that I really, it's important to me that folks understand. Um, one of the I'm candidates, just the visible part of it. Exactly. I mean, I know you're a component. I was going to say one of the candidates um, that I know well, uh, who was in my di- who was running to represent my district. He did not make it to the primary, but he nonetheless ran a fantastic campaign. Uh, Kevin Mack, who is the district director for yes. uh, Congressman John Delaney, he's John Delaney. his district director. And Kevin was endorsed by SE, SEIU Local 500. Yes. And so, yes. And, you know, I think, um, you know, Kevin ran what I think was a great campaign. He worked really hard. Yes. He came up short, but I see him having a bright future in politics because he's a smart guy and he certainly knows politics I and he knows how to organize. So. Yeah, yeah, that's what that was one of the I mean, one of one of the challenges is, especially in Maryland, is that in these delegate races, it's really hard to 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 lift someone. That's why we tend to concentrate on the Senate races, because I always say, give me a fair shot at a one on one race. I'll take that every time. But when you have six people running for three slots and the top three win, it's so hard to especially when. You know, obviously, we endorsed um, Delegate David Fraser Hidalgo. We endorsed um, uh, in that district. We endorsed Kevin Mack. Um, but you know, like other than kind of giving Kevin money um, and trying to support him a little bit on the ground, there's a limited amount that you can do for a delegate candidate running in a crowded field because you also have a responsibility to the other two folks that you endorsed who very well may be in some ways taking votes away from who would be your top priority. And if I endorse three delegates in a district, I don't get to prioritize them. You know, I want this one to win more than the other one. My responsibility is to work to get all three of them elected. And so in this instance, you know, we couldn't get Kevin, um, we couldn't get Kevin elected. And, and that's part of the frustration, but I completely agree with you. Kevin was one of the great bright lights, um, um, of this election season, and I trust that he'll be back. And look, uh, you know, we're not even always able to endorse all the bright lights. I mean, look at someone like Vaughn Stewart, who, thank God, mm-hmm. got a delegates um, race in 19. But I mean, he, our members, after interviewing him, were a god. They were in love with him. You know, they thought, <laughs> look at this guy. He's a, he's a member of the democratic socialist, but he's a K street lawyer with a thick Alabama accent. You know, I mean, he walked in and charmed the pants off of our committee, but at the end of the day, there are other considerations. We had two incumbents, you know, that we liked very much. Um, and then there was third slot and there were only, you know, there was only one more slot to give out. And so we couldn't support Vaughn in that instance because we had, um, someone equally impressive, Marlon Jenkins, who was a, and a, you know, a labor brother, you know, so we went with him, but that happens all the time. So Kevin Mack, I think is, is amazing. And I trust that he'll be back. I was, uh, I agree. And I think he will, and I'm sure he's going to keep his foot into politics and mark another close race. I was watching during the democratic primary was the, the very crowded and wildly interesting district 18 race, 
Um, I got to tell you, man, wow. Um, you know, the, the race between Jeff Wildstriker and Dana Beyer, uh, boy, that was somewhat contentious. And um, Dana, she, uh, yeah, she didn't hold back, and she certainly ran uh, an aggressive campaign. She ran a robust campaign and put a lot of money into her efforts. And the District 18 mm-hmm. race, um, I was uh, I, I, I followed that pretty closely because I had a few friends in that, um, and mm-hmm. I'm watching from afar, and I'm like, hmm, I don't know what's going to happen. But you know, one of the people <laughs> that I I paid close attention to, who I think really has a bright future in politics, is someone named Leslie Milano, and she mm-hmm. really she came in fourth place, and somebody who used That's to be, one. yeah, exactly. I mean, she's somebody who worked her tail off. And um, to give credit where it's due. If she could have gotten in 60 days earlier, Ryan, she would have won. I mean, she uh, blew the doors off of everyone, both uh, on the doors and in fundraising and in her ability. Leslie's problem was, quite frankly, and we endorsed her. Leslie's problem was she got started just too late, just a little too late. And you can see that she ran past people who had been running a lot longer than her. And if you'd have given her you know, if the primary was in September instead of June, there's no question in my mind that Leslie Milano would have been one of the three nominees from the Democratic Party. I'm not saying who she would have beaten, but I will say one of them would not be coming back. Um, I strongly agree with that sentiment. And just watching her, I mean, she did she did six months of she did two years of work in six months, um, mm-hmm. virtually unknown. And then the way that she ran her campaign, um, it was all on issues. People liked her. She's relatable, a mom of two, and somebody who yes. is just really understands local policy. And I always, am, yep. I always drift towards people who really can has a strong grasp on issues across the board and can get nitty gritty, granular into polit in the policy. And we can sit down and have a a dissect a yes. piece of policy and look at the the mm-hmm. public aspect of it, the good, the bad, where we are. Um, you know, pros and cons. And Leslie was able to do that. And that's not to say that Jared Solomon and Emily Shetty both ran fantastic campaigns, but you're sure. right. And, and you know, Mark, that's a piece of campaign advice that I think is salient for anybody who yep. is running in Montgomery County. If you want to do well, if you want to, if you don't have a whole lot of name recognition, but you know, you have a campaign right. plan and you know, you're a good candidate, get in early. Mm-hmm. I mean, get in a year yes. in advance and start raising money. Yes. Yes, yes. Raising money and getting around, especially in Montgomery County, but I would argue anywhere, is that you have to, you know, like it's a, it, politics is just such a visceral, you know, people want to put their hands on you and get to know. It's almost like the, the New Hampshire primary writ large, you know, the old saw about how, you know, I didn't vote for you because you didn't ask me to, you know, it, it's, it's so, especially in Montgomery County, it's, it's, you you have to you know you have to have time to to not only be on the doors but go to the all these different community association meetings and these different educational coalitions and these senior events and you just it's just very difficult to do in, in such a shortened time frame but i'll tell you what leslie came daggone close to being to being able to pull it off and i we were proud to support her and i trust that she'll be back too She's she's not going anywhere. I can tell you that. I just I've been watching just from her Facebook, and she's keeping involved. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that 
something will come along where she's talented. Um, and I know that no matter what she does, um, she's going to, she's going to look out for the hardworking people of her district. Now I, I want to bring up an issue. I want to bring up an issue that caught everybody's attention. And my friend, Adam Pagnuco, he reported on it back in June that this, mm-hmm. the SEIU man, they slam Mike Miller. In fact, that's <laughs> the, the headline of one of, Adam's seven state pieces that SEIU slams Mike Miller on NRA money. And the ad was tough. I mean, we're talking about, well, look, this is your Democrat and it's a democratic organization. The Senate president must've really gotten under you guys' skin. I mean, and look, well, this is what I want to, what I want to really emphasize about that is that number one, it really, as I said before, when we were talking about who sets the agenda, like, number one, it's not personal. And number two, it's not Mark versus Mike Miller. It really is the fact that our members, who, quite frankly, have gone to, to, to Annapolis for six years in a row asking for simple, a very simple collective bargaining bill, for adjunct faculty at community colleges across the state. These are adjuncts who, I mean, people think of adjunct professors as this, you know, as this group of folks who are relatively, you know, um, uh, privileged or or well-resourced. And I've got adjuncts who were agitating to be organized that were sleeping in their cars. I've got adjuncts who are on food stamps. I've got adjuncts who are on the subsidized child care who are able to take advantage of subsidized child care themselves. So it's important to understand who adjuncts are, you know, adjunct faculty 40 years ago probably were these kind of, you know, rich old guys who, you know, had retired and were looking for something to do in their spare time. So they teach a business class or something. The, the adjunct faculty today have transformed the face of higher education. More and more classes are being taught by them, and more and more adjuncts, this is their full-time job. They may have to teach two or three classes at two or three different campuses, but this is their full-time job. And because of the way the legislature has set up the collective bargaining scheme, every single unit that wants to collectively bargain in the public sector, you have to go to Annapolis and say, Mother, may I, Father, may I have the right that people in the private sector have enjoyed since 1935 or something. So we've gone back and we've gone for the past five years, we've gone back to Annapolis and asked for justice for these people. There's never been really any reason why they shouldn't have it other than Mike Miller just didn't want them to have it. And so I don't, I'm not mad at folks that decide to work within the system. That was us for five or six years. We wrote checks to Mike Miller. We went to Mike Miller's fundraisers. We listened to Mike Miller with regards to who we should support. We, you know, we were part of that establishment just as anyone else were. But after the fifth time when Mike Miller telling our adjuncts that they didn't have the right to collectively bargain because he just didn't think they should, we decided that we didn't. You know, we were a union with nothing to lose, and we decided that if we were going to achieve justice in Annapolis for working people, it was going to require a change of caste in Annapolis. And so that's what we set out to do. The aim never really was to unseat Mike Miller in the primary. I mean, realistically, Mike Miller had 30 times as much money as Tommy McKeela did, even though he was, you know, a great guy on the doors. And so we supported him, and I would have, 
you know, would have loved for him to have won. But at the end of the day, that's not really primarily what Take a Hike Mike was about. Take a Hike Mike was about wrapping Mike Miller like an albatross around the necks of Democratic incumbents who were more interested in serving his will than serving the will of their constituents. And we did that in districts all across the state. And look, we were successful in many respects. We took out the the president pro tempore of the Senate, Mac. Uh, McFadden, Nat McFadden in Baltimore City. We took out Barbara Robinson. We took out the chairman of the Finance Committee, Senator Mac Middleton. We took out the chairman of the Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee, Senator Joan Carter Conway. To Mary I Washington, believe, man. I was watching that with Lynn Foxwell. Oh, we were doing star. And Mary she's Washington. A lo- she's yeah. a local 500 member. She's yeah, a she's local 500 member. Incredible. And I mean, we were proud election. to support her, and she. Election yeah, she night. was up against the very, you know, all the arrayed powers were against Mary Washington more than anyone else. Mary Washington gutted that race out on the doors with the help of SEIU and other allies, but she gutted that race out on the doors. And that, and she is just the, 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 the highest manifestation of the fact that when the people have had enough, it doesn't matter how much how many resources you bring to bear, people are going to vote in their best interest. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're, you, you, you pay attention to state politics, you do, I do. Um, many people who we know, and you know, there's a, there's a, there's a circle of us, you know, with reporters and state politics and aides and whatnot. Sure. And I, I got to tell you, one of the most interesting races was district 45, Corey McRae and my friend, Corey <laughs> McRae, Corey called me up last year and he said, Hey, I'd love to talk to you. And, um, to, to do the, we did it, we did a show together and, um, mm-hmm. Corey, not only, I love his story. I love his story mm-hmm. because I can relate to it. It's redemption. It's like, man, mm-hmm. this is a guy that puts it all out there. Who's honest, who's transparent, who just says, this was me. This is where I, this is what, what I was. And this is where I went to became an electrician got married, supported a family, and then decided to run for yep. state delegate and said, look, Nathaniel McFadden is a decent man, but I don't believe mm-hmm. that he is doing the district what I think I could do for it. He put his name on a ballot. Right. He ran, and he ran one of the most exciting campaigns in all of Baltimore. And, and man, Absolutely. he's going to make a heck of a state senator. He really he's is. He's a rock star. He's a rock yeah. star. I mean, Corey, Corey also, in, 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 in addition to Marion, I would add, Antonio Hayes to that class. Mm-hmm. They were able to be long-term incumbents because they had conversation after conversation on the doors. Nat McFadden was the president, was the principal of Dunbar High School, the biggest high school in the 45th Legislative District for something mm-hmm. like 30 years. Everybody knew Nat McFadden. It was very difficult to beat Nat McFadden, but Corey made his case person by person, door by door about why there needed to be a new brand of energetic leadership in that district, and he was able to get it done. That was not – none of those were easy races to do. But I would argue to you that what got manifested in in Maryland has also been manifested in New York with the collapse of the uh, IDC and the New York Senate races and in Massachusetts with a new African-American congresswoman. This is just a different – And perhaps it's due to Trump. I'd like to think it's also due to Mike Miller. I think there is a revolt in the Democratic Party against the same old, same old. And folks are (laughs) looking for young, energetic leadership that is willing 
you know, that is willing to, to, to take on leadership when necessary to get things done for the people. Um, and, and I think you're going to see this more and more. We, we didn't get Mike Miller, but I think he knows. Look, anytime he Mike listened. Miller has to, yeah, I mean, anytime he has to appoint Paul Pinsky to a committee chairmanship, I mean, <laughs> anyone that knows the history of Paul Pinsky, Paul Pinsky, oh, yeah. we used to joke that Paul Pinsky had a meeting of the Progressive Caucus in the Senate in a phone booth. It was just him and maybe one or two other senators. Paul Pinsky has traditionally been the standard bearer from the left side ideologically of the caucus. So the fact that Mike Miller was forced to turn to him to chair a committee tells you that he was scrambling to, um, to, you know, to, 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 to regain his kind of hold on power. Because look, if the, the Democratic caucus is not stupid. If Mike Miller can't save Mac Middleton, his very best friend and heir apparent to the throne, if Mike Miller can't save Joan Carter Conway, but, you know, a, a three- or four-term senator, former councilwoman, committee chair, you know, if he can't save them, then that caucus knows that he can't save them either, and so they're looking for other friends, and here we are. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'd like to think that partly that senators – are, are operating in, a, in an altruistic fashion. But the other side of the coin is, you know, they know that they, they need friends other than Mike Miller, and that's not how it used to be. And so if nothing else, we've achieved that. And I think you'll see that reflected in the kind of legislative sessions that we're going to have coming up in January. Yeah, well, um, Mike Miller is listening. I know he is paying attention. And he's also paying <laughs> attention to Comptroller Peter Francho. And Love him or hate him, and I happen to love Comptroller Peter Francho because you know what? He constantly bucks the establishment, and that's the kind of contrarian I am. I mean I can go all sides and look at an issue and say, what's going to disrupt the political machine? People – when I say machine, people who are so ingrained in politics, what I hate most about politics is I believe strongly in – working your way up to a grassroots level. Mark, I have been in campaigns, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and I got my start when I fell in love with politics back in college. And I said, all right, what do I need to do? And I was, I was living in the city of Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh is a great city for politics. And so yeah. I went to work and started helping out a local candidate who was a Democrat who was running for judge. And I said, oh, okay, mm-hmm. well, what does this guy need to do? Well, he needs – in Pennsylvania – um, judges need to get on the Republican and Democratic ballot. So I went uh-huh. out with my fraternity brothers, and we collected mm-hmm. thousands of signatures. And that was my first real um, entrance into politics and Great. organizing. And so it was it was fascinating. And so then I said, well, what do I want to do next? And then I got involved with a little-known city councilman named Bill Peduto, who is now the mayor of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep. And so um, Bill and I still – uh, tweet one another, and we still sometimes occasionally text. And I, Pittsburgh is such a great organizing city, as is Baltimore. Um, the similarities yep. are, are 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 very simpatico in how they, um, you know, how they do politics. So then, yes. it, um, I went off, and then I I got involved in congressional politics, statewide politics, all kinds of different politics, and then um, I got tired of it. Really, I mean, I, I like campaigns, but. <laughs> I, I like this other side where you can sit back and have a conversation and, and get to know and from the other side and, and ask people what their thoughts are um, and then just have a basic conversation. So, 
you know, looking at some of these congressional races, Mark, and I don't know mm-hmm. what your thoughts are, but looking at – I live in the 6th Congressional District, and that was an interesting mm-hmm. primary. This is somebody – you know, yeah. you had David Trone who ran two years prior in the 8th Congressional District, came close, put a lot of money into his own race, and then did mm-hmm. the same thing back in – um, back over here, but you also had progressive folks like Roger Mano, who is um, a major champion of of unions. And oh, I want to say this about Roger: I got to know him pretty well throughout the campaign. He's one of the most fundamentally decent men that I've ever gotten to know in politics. And there's not many, Absolutely. but Roger. <laughs> the You're exception. Right. They're, they're not nearly as much. They're, yeah. they're not he, nearly as many. And Roger, um, he he worked hard. He was in this thing for all the right reasons. And um, another breakout star was um, Aruna Miller, of course, the state delegate. Mm-hmm. And then you would have Nadia Hashimi, who ran a fantastic yep. campaign as a first-time candidate. Uh, um, yep. So, so looking at the the Democrat uh, race here in the sixth congressional district, um, you know, now we mm-hmm. have the Republican and Democratic candidate. It's I think a D plus six race is the SEIU. Are they paying attention to this race at all? Is that something that they're invested in? Uh, I think that, I mean, obviously uh, I, we have not formally endorsed it. We obviously were behind Roger Bano, 150%. Um, Obviously he couldn't get over the hump, I think money wise, but I, you know, like he's the kind of candidate and, you know, look, we like Aruna. She's not easily, you know, she's not my flavor of Democrat on some of the economic issues, but look, let's be clear. David Trone was, you know, not our second, third, or fourth choice in this race, <laughs> and so I can't really speak specifically about about whether, you know, where we'll be in this race. Um, but yeah. I suspect, if I had to guess, that we'll, we'll be with we'll be with David Trone. Uh, um, uh, but but I think. Certainly, I mean, we have. There are a lot of folks that that work for David on his congressional campaign that I have a lot of respect for, um, and so and who assure me that he's, you know, a lot more progressive than 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 it seemed like some of his record um, would reflect. And so, you know, I, I I we are keeping an eye on that, but I don't anticipate that that's something that we're going to wade very heavily into. But I just don't. I don't think it's going to be much of a race. A D-plus-six seat in this kind of environment, I don't think yeah. – I mean, I know that she came close to Delaney, I guess, two or four years ago, but I would just – if that race ends up within 10 points, I'll be surprised. I just don't think it's going to – I just don't think it's, it's going to be close. And, you know, it's, it's quite tough, frankly, he's got all the money in the world. What does he need from us anyway? <laughs> well, um, I, you know yeah. – there's that, um, and you know we could we could have a, another hour long conversation about money and politics and its influence, and that's certainly a worthy a worthy conversation. But man, look over at the first congressional district, and I will say this: somebody, and I hope it's Jesse Colvin. Somebody has got to take out Andy Harris, please. Oh, geez. he. I mean, if there was any year to do it, I think it would be this year. But I—that's another race that, like, to me, it's almost analogous to the sixth. In that, you know, look, I would love, you know, I—I I don't think we've endorsed there. I don't actually, I don't think I have any members in the first congressional district. Part of the reason why we probably haven't endorsed there, um, yeah. but well, I may have a few. Uh, I and certainly, you know, if we endorse there, 
it'll 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 be for Jesse uh, Colvin. But I, I, you know, like I just I have a hard time seeing that race happen either. That's a race where I think having Governor Hogan on the ballot it makes that makes that long shot district an even longer shot because I expect that Governor Hogan will do very well there, and that's it's going to be hard to get over that hump. He counteracts kind of the Trump effect, I think, in the first. And so, you know, if I was, uh, I, I certainly would love it if, 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 if the Democrat were able to pull a surprise there, but I, I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. I think you're going to see a seven to one congressional delegation go back to DC um, again next year. All men. I All know. men. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge proponent in, and champion of, of, of women candidates. And look, I think this is the year of the woman and you're going to see the Pennsylvania delegation completely be overhauled. Mm-hmm. Um, very exciting to see Christian, Kristen cinema out in Arizona, who looks like she's going to, yes. to beat uh, Martha McSally. That's going to be fun mm-hmm. to watch. And she is dynamite. I've seen her um, down in DC. Yeah, um, she was in town for a, for a Trump fundraiser. Oh, last, did you go last week or the week before? No, no, no. No, but I, I I I met her actually two weeks ago. I met her in Phoenix at the Pride at Work conference. She spoke, and she was just so, she is such a yeah. really amazing and dynamic person. It's hard for me to imagine her losing. I certainly hope that she doesn't. I know that's going to be close. Arizona is always a, a sure. you know a a tinge red, but I, I I think she can overcome that this yeah this year. I, I think so too. I'm excited and I. Th- Arizona is is I would consider it uh, a purple state at least now it right. is and I with don't I wouldn't yeah. yeah with a red issue and I think that you know since the late Senator McCain's family are 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 neutral but also positive to Kristen Cinema um, I would imagine yes. that they would either stay out of it or. I'm not sure mm-hmm. what's going to happen in that race, but if I had to bet today, I think that she would pull it out. Um, and it's certainly, I, I think it's certainly a worthwhile race. But, you know, speaking of politics, you mentioned Larry Hogan. He's the incumbent governor. And for being a Republican in the state of Maryland, it's, uh, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's a tough battleground sometimes for Republicans. But, of course, Maryland is a um, – it's an interesting state where Larry Hogan mm-hmm. it has high approval ratings by all polls and mm-hmm. Indications. I believe he's either in the the high 60s or um, the 70s, sure. and I think he's close by um, Charlie Baker. And he, sure. for what it's worth, he's worked well with um, Comptroller Peter Francho. And some Democrats seem to be um, unwilling or not ready yet to endorse um, Ben Jealous. But that race, mm-hmm. I know that there's a, I believe that there's a poll, and um, Doctor. Um, Dr. Cromer um, is releasing a Gautier yes. poll, I believe, tomorrow, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, uh, I think and there's one that's at 12.01 a.m. I think I'll be clicking. <laughs> Dr. Cromer, I'll be clicking. clicking. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to give her a shout out. She's fantastic yeah. and one of the best political she scientists. So what's your Absolutely. take on this? And she I works mean, for Goucher, where, where my members are represented. So that even makes her more fabulous. Yeah, and I saw her. I saw her this year for the first time down at at Talls. I don't know if you. I. I don't, were you there this year at uh, in, in no, Chrisfield? Oh, no, the, not that I can't do that heat. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hot. No, it no, is no. very hot. Yeah. Well. No um, so, big governor's race. Um, ben Jealous has a national following, and he is well known mm-hmm. throughout the country as the former NAACP uh, president. He stepped down in 2013. Mm-hmm. 
um, went into venture capitalism, and then he, I believe he had his roots in Baltimore, spent some time in California, mm-hmm. traveled the country with Bernie Sanders in 2016, and really all yep. the money was on Rashern Baker to beat Ben Jealous, and then, of course, tragically, when Kevin Kamen has passed away, um, I think the race yeah. shifted, that dynamics were um, really upended in that, in that time. Uh, mm-hmm. Rashern Baker quickly lost favor among a lot of the Democrats, and they said, oh, man, it's going to be a repeat of Anthony Brown, and then Ben Jealous yeah. was, was elected. And I knew this race was breaking for Jealous three, um, about a month out, I, and I said, I think Jealous is going to win this thing because he has yeah. the momentum. And I just remember a friend of mine who's very active in politics up in Garrett County, Garrett County of all places. I said, mm-hmm. what are you hearing on the ground in Garrett County? She said, everybody's for Jealous. And I said, wow. And I said, well, what about <laughs> what about Baker? Or even, you know, what about Madalino or Krishante Vignaraja, um, Alec Ross? Right. And they said, nope, everybody's for Jealous. No. So Jealous enters the race. He's He's had a few stumbles, and he hasn't been able to pick up – I would say the momentum yet, but look, it's still right. September 17th and it, it is, yep. we have less than two months to go till the election. It's a democratic wave. And I don't care what anybody says. There is a national democratic wave that is happening. It is happening. Absolutely. And it, I think the, the, the nucleus of that wave, it revolves around Donald Trump, Donald Trump and yep. just the absolute, mismanagement of government. So, Mark, the million-dollar question is, given what we know about Ben Jealous and Larry Hogan and all the variables, is that that going to be able to carry Ben Jealous, or is it just not going to hit at the right time? Well, I I think that – so what I have – my primary advocacy around this race has only been to say, look – Anybody that tells you they are certain of who is going to win this race, the more certain they are, the less certain I am about them. Because this is just a classic race of, you know, high approvals versus a horrible environment. And let me tell you something, an unprecedented grassroots effort by Ben Jealous. I mean, for context, Anthony Brown had 16 field staff on election day in 2014. Ben Jealous already has 75 throughout the state that are hired mm-hmm. on that are the, 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 the grassroots momentum, enthusiasm, and energy is unlike I have seen in Maryland in quite some time. That being said, Larry Hogan is very popular. I think that this race is going to really come down to a coin flip. The problem I have is with the media kind of lazily coming to the conclusion that somehow this race is over or it's a wash or Hogan wins in a walk. I guarantee you neither one of them is going to win over the other by more than five or six points. Either way, Agreed. this is going to be yep. a close race. And what the, 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 if the media would pay attention to the fact that I'm glad you brought up Massachusetts. Massachusetts has Charlie Baker, a very mm-hmm. comparably a comparably democratic state, a comparably popular governor, and compare how much money the RGA has spent in Massachusetts versus how much money the RGA has spent in Maryland. I'll tell you, 
The RTA has spent zero, nothing in Massachusetts. They're spending a million dollars a month in Maryland because they know that the Maryland race is very much up for grabs. This is going to be a very competitive election until the end. Anyone who thinks that, you know, Larry Hogan is sleeping easy at night or whistling past the Ben Jealous graveyard is deluding themselves. Larry Hogan knows that he's in a dogfight, and so does Ben Jealous. And Larry Hogan has more resources, money, no question about it. But I would argue that labor and other progressive groups have independent expenditures that we're going to be dropping that are going to be that are going to blunt some of that money edge. But there's no question about the fact that Larry Hogan will have more money and will do more TV and will do more media. But there's also no question about the fact that this has never been a worse time to run as a Republican anywhere, and certainly not in Maryland. And so what Ben Jealous what Ben Jealous needs to do and what he is doing, I think, is assembling the the troops together so that if the wave hits correctly, he's elected. And I you know, that's all that you can do. And I think he's I think he's doing it. Uh, you know, that's and I, I see the enthusiasm here in Montgomery County and I see that Ben is organizing his team and they're, they're traditional Democratic hotspots around yep. the state. You have Montgomery County is a big bastion of Democratic votes. Then, of course, you have mm-hmm. PG County, Baltimore City, yep. po- big portions of Baltimore County, Howard County, and then down um, in, in, in portions of Southern Maryland. And so Charles I think County, yep. rallying, the, rallying the base and driving up Democratic numbers here in the Washington and Baltimore suburb, suburbs is smart. Now – what is mm-hmm. what does Ben need to do to get his message out to um, I would more regional areas like Western Maryland, the Eastern the Shore, Western Northern Maryland. Maryland, Carroll County? What's the what's the message sure. that plays there for Ben? Um, I think so. This is what the 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 basic mathematics. Of Maryland is that, and this was this was um, a guy named Jason. I'm uh, forgetting his last name. Um, a Democratic Party uh, guy in Maryland uh, made the argument in print that I've been making for the past year, and that is that if you look at 2010, 2014, 2006, 2002, the Republican vote for governor is in a relatively narrow band. It's always somewhere yeah. between 800,000 and 880,000. It's never yep. been any higher. So the question is, you know, if 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 turnout is 1.8 million, which is not unreasonable because it was 1.9 million in 2014. So even if you get to 1.8 million, you there aren't enough. You know, like there isn't enough real estate, as they say in the political game. There's not enough real estate for Hogan. There are not enough folks who vote in Maryland that are open to voting for Larry Hogan to withstand a real surge in voter turnout. And so what they, what I believe that, that Hogan is betting on is that he can keep that number low enough so that, so that he wins anyway, whereas Jealous is betting that he's got to, if he can get that number up high enough, Hogan can't jump that high. There just aren't that many folks. And I mm-hmm. think that um, we'll see who has the better bet of that. I think it's a very – it's a close call, and I say that as someone who will be doing everything I can for Ben. But, I, you know, I, I don't – I'm not siding with the side that says 
Ben's got this in the bag either. This is going to be a dog fight until the end. Um, <laughs> well, right. I think that Ben's got to reach out much better to um, to the areas of the state where he's not as well known outside of the Baltimore D.C. metro market. But I would right. know, as you said in Carrick County, his grassroots support carried him to Democratic primary victories in every single county, but I believe Calvert and Prince George's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, clearly they I have think, the county executive there. Right, right, right. So that, so that's an exception, you know. But so everywhere else, you know, Democrats who came out and voted, voted for Ben Jealous everywhere in Garrett County and Carroll County and Frederick County and any county you can name, they voted for Ben Jealous. And I would argue that Democratic primary voters are not all that much different from their neighbors who didn't vote in the primary. If they knew enough about Ben to vote for him and bought into his message enough to vote for him, then I think that there is a there's a floor below which he's probably not going to fall in these areas. And, you know, falling to a certain level in Wacomico or Worcester County could be made up in three precincts in Montgomery County, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't say that to belittle folks that, that, that don't live in, in the metro area, but there's a reason why all the concentration of resources is on the 95 corridor. It's because that's where all the votes are. You know, it's yeah. just true. You know, yeah. you can't make up enough in Garrett and Charles Garrett and, you know, uh, well, not Frederick, but, you know, if you go out west, Garrett, Washington County, or go east, Wacomico, Worcester, uh, Dorchester, you know, there just aren't enough votes there to make up getting killed in Montgomery or Prince George's or, or, or Baltimore County. even. Yeah. I um, the map is clearly favoring Democrats. Um, I don't know where the enthusiasm. I, I think it's enthusiastic on both sides. I think Marylanders generally believe that the governor is a good guy. He's done some good things, yep. and um, anybody who is complacent on either side would be wrongheaded. And Ben Jealous has a clear game plan, and he knows the same strategic mistakes to avoid that Anthony Brown made four years ago. So. Um, we're in for a race, and I would lo- and I think you would I mean, agree with me. At, if you look, Ryan, in, in Baltimore City in 2014 on Election Day, I know I was, you know, I was running a race uh, here for someone else, but in 2014 on Election Day in Baltimore City, if you didn't see the 50 feet away from polling place signs, you wouldn't have even known it was Election Day. You know, yeah. like – you have got to, especially in like in a place like Baltimore, you have got to light up these streets. You have got to have November 6th or 7th or whatever it is be like akin to a national holiday. Folks have to be in the streets and banging on doors and dragging folks out. I believe that Ben will do that. Anthony did not do any of that, and that's how he lost. Well, yeah, I mean, we <laughs> there was a whole breakdown in why I think Anthony Brown lost, but you know I think that yeah, either well, side. I have a dear friend that helped run that, so I don't want to be too tough on him. But I, I, yeah. I, I do think that <laughs> I do think that I do think that Ben will not make the mistake that Anthony Brown made. No, I think if, it, yeah, if Larry I mean, Hogan is reelected, it won't be because of Ben Jealous. It will be because the electorate has come to the considered decision that Larry Hogan has done enough to merit a second chance. And that's a fair point. And I think that uh, and I think you would agree, too, that I would love to see them do more than just one debate. Uh, I, I think oh, the one I'm debate thing is. Uh, 
Yeah, and I would love to see five debates or ten and town hall styles, and the more that democracy is brought directly to the the voters, Mark. Mark, I got to tell you, this one right. debate thing, and it's like the format is even lame. I mean, how many debates did the one Democrats hour? have? Yeah, I mean, it's like how are you going to talk hour? about? I, I I don't understand how two people go into a room. One wants five, the other one wants two, and they come out agreeing yeah. on one. <laughs> well, I don't get it. I would love to see how that clearly not on that down. debate. Yeah, I was not on that debate negotiation team. Yeah, and and look, and I read an article today. I I forget who it who it was written by, but it said that Ben Jealous has everything to gain in a debate, and Larry Hogan yes. has everything to lose. Now, Larry Hogan can right. score points and talk about his record and highlight sure. his accomplishments, and Ben Jealous can also talk about what he would do differently than Larry Hogan sure. and highlight his policy platform. And so I, it's just these debates, these one-on-one sessions where the candidates are on a stage and the lights are shining and you have moderators throwing out the tough questions um, – we need to see that. We need to see that. Voters yeah. need to see that. Because, and I, I'm sorry. I don't believe for a fact that debates don't change minds. I watched a lot of the oh, live I debates. I think they do because people tune in. They watch it. They want to see. They want to see fireworks, Mark. And I. And if you remember the three debates between um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton yep. wiped the floor with him um, every. Yep single time and there's a whole host of theories out there about why hillary lost this election that she didn't show up in pennsylvania wisconsin or um, michigan and some of the other states or that she abandoned that i don't believe that's altogether true but i mean what i think really stung hillary was the comey thing back you know like 10 days before the election i I don't think i mean but i also have a view that debates matter more the more down ballot you get like for president, I think that most people know which way they're going, and the debates sure. don't sway them all sure. that much. But I think a gubernatorial debate, I think absolutely oh, yeah. there are people that will tune in not really being sure. You know, I think the higher up ballot you go, the more sure people are because it's much more of a tribal thing, you know? Yeah. Especially in and, this environment. And, and I think the worst thing that Larry Hogan wants is for Donald Trump to start talking about him. And and I'm sure yep. Ben Jealous is like, please start talking about Larry Hogan. Because then, you know, then Ben Jealous has an opportunity to say, look, you know, Larry Hogan, yes, he has disavowed Trump on many issues, but he's still a Republican. He's and he's he's his boy. That's his guy. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and Larry Hogan says that he didn't vote for Donald Trump. And I believe that. I, I really don't think and I don't yeah. think Hogan has anything whatsoever in common with Trump. And I think that sometimes the Democrats in Maryland try to stretch that out as much as they can, but they're two fundamentally yeah. different people. But it also confuses me. It's why not Larry our Hogan strongest is. argument. I'll grant that. <laughs> well, no, but, but I also don't understand why Larry Hogan came out for Chris Christie, maybe because Chris Christie was his, his pal during 2014 and helped him out. I mean, sure. Friendships are right. everything in politics, but um, he went up to. I remember seeing Larry Hogan when I was up in New Hampshire, following candidates around and talking to them during 2016. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and people make the they try to draw a parallel between Christie's second term and and what Governor Hogan's second term could look like. But 
I mean, Christie went out with like a 13% approval rating. I just don't think Larry Hogan <laughs> yeah. is that stupid. I, I really don't. I think he's a very savvy politician, um, and I, I just don't think that Larry Hogan would would go that same direction as Chris Christie, where at the end of Chris Christie's term, he basically said, you know, the hell with all of this. I don't care. I'm I'm a jerk. I'm a big Trump guy. And it just I, I, I thought Christie came into back in 2009 like, OK, all right, let me give this guy a chance and see what he can do. Um, right. He was pugnacious and he was assertive. But then again, um, he seemed like in his first term he could get something accomplished. But then. Man, his second term, he just turned into a complete jerk. He went all the um, way. And I think that was because he was going to run for president, and he figured he had to yeah. be as as right-wing nut job as he could be to be considered for the Republican nomination. I, I'm not sure that that's who. <laughs> and look, I want to underscore the fact that I think Hogan's agenda is profoundly damaging for the people that I care about and advocate for, but he's much smarter about how he goes about it. And he certainly is not, I don't think, I mean, look, I've publicly said, I don't think our strongest argument as jealous supporters is trying to morph Trump into Hogan. I don't think it works. I don't think people believe it. And I think that when you try it, then people don't believe anything else that you say, you know? Yeah. And so uh, my suggestion would not be to turn Trump into Hogan. My suggestion would be to highlight ways in which Hogan has been bad on his own, irrespective of Trump. On education funding, you know, we've gone from first or second in the country down to the down to ninth or tenth under Hogan. There are a whole host of issues to take on Hogan on where you don't even have to mention Trump. And look, Trump is going to motivate the base to vote no matter whether you say it or not. I think continuing to try to tr- tie him to Trump just makes people in the middle say, you're not serious because – Larry Hogan is not Donald Trump. You know, it just doesn't work. And I, I, yeah. I, I feel like we've kind of stopped doing that, and I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, that I think that horse has been beaten a few times, and I mean, maybe the first <laughs> couple of times where you draw a parallel to that, okay, right. I get that. But I, I think that both Republicans and Democrats, I mean, I, I tell Republicans the same thing. You, you know, stop trying – Stop calling Ben Jealous a socialist and stop saying that he's O'Malley part three. And for the Democrats, um, I just want to say you guys have got to come up with better arguments than that Larry Hogan is Donald Trump um, part two. And I'm just like, come on, let's stick to policy. Well, you started this hour off by saying that we would agree on more than I thought. We definitely agree. I'm telling you. (laughs) I'm telling you. You and I are – I think we had a great conversation. And so um, you know, just to wrap up. What are some of the races that you are really following closely and kind of what you are hoping for as an outcome? Obviously, the governor's race, we've talked about that ad nauseum, but um, are there any other other down ballot races that um, we should be paying attention to, Mark? Um, I think that there are there are several state Senate races that I think are really important. I mean, uh, District 42 in Baltimore County, Robbie Leonard. Um, who is, you know, a oh, young, yeah. great progressive guy who is running for Jim Brochin's seat, trying to keep it in Democratic hands. You know, juxtapose him next to uh, a Kathy – we didn't even get to this, but to uh, Kathy Klausmeyer, Jim Mathias, who are <laughs> shamefully trying to wrap themselves around Hogan. Meanwhile, Hogan is full-throated endorsing his opponent, their opponent, uh, Klaus Meyer's opponent, 
and Matthias's opponent. You can't hug Hogan while he's pushing you away. And guess what? That never, ever works. Kathy Klausmeyer, the people in Parkville know that you're a Democrat. In Ocean City, the people of Ocean City know that you're a Democrat, Jim Matthias. So when you try and run to, 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 hug, to hug Larry Hogan, you don't do anything but tell your base to go take a flying leap. It's just not a sound strategy. There are people, people who have been voting Republican on the shore for years and reelecting, reelecting Jim Matthias at the same time because they made the decision that they didn't mind that he was a Democrat because they believed he still worked in their self-interest. When you try a cynical maneuver like denying the nominee of your party and wrapping yourself around Hogan as if you can confuse the voters about it, then they start to look askance at you, and that's how you lose. And quite frankly, from our perspective, from a progressive Democrat's perspective, we saw this happen in 2014 in the House of Delegates. If a couple of conservative Democrats lose, I won't cry in my beer. The committee ratios are still be the same. Mike Miller will have to put some other Democrat on finance beside Kathy Klausmeyer and Jim Mathias. And as I go up and down the roster of Democrats in the Senate, I can't think of anyone that would be worse from our perspective that's a Democrat than Jim Mathias or Kathy Klausmeyer. So if they're not here next year, given what they have done to the Democratic nominee of this party in this gubernatorial contest, um, uh, I won't cry in my beer. And most importantly, <laughs> what's been demonstrated now is that the party bosses are not in charge of this anymore. If, if anybody cared yeah. what Mike Miller thought, then then Mac Middleton would be returning to chair the finance committee. This is in and the he, hands of the people, and I yeah. trust them with it. Yeah, and and to that point, and as you know, we wrap up. Mary Beth Carosa and, yep. and and Delegate Christian Mealy both delegates running for state senate they're formidable candidates they are they're credible yes. and 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 yep. so um I, I don't understand the 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 democratic party's strategy of of putting out this mailer where they you know basically are i mean sure okay maybe i do get it i mean their districts are more culturally conservative and they're going to have a lot of the the hogan voters but i'm telling you what, they're going to vote for the republican what is what is more cynical than sending piece of mail touting how Kathy Klausmeyer stood up to party bosses, and that piece of mail is paid for by the, her party boss. That's crazy, man. I, I just I, – I mean, I'm that's less, just – Yeah. I'm rarely speechless, but I'm speechless about that. You are touting the fact that she stood up to you in a piece of mail – it's just so cynical that it that I think it I think it turns people off, and I can tell you I've heard from people all over uh, District Eight uh, in in uh, in in Eastern Baltimore County that are saying, huh, what 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 is this about? What I got this piece of mail? What is it? I mean, it just confuses people, and it doesn't. You know, there's nobody that's not clear that Kathy Klausmeyer is a Democrat. So when she sends silly pieces of mail sent by the party bosses saying that she stood up to those same party bosses, she's only hurting herself. She's making herself look silly. You know, yeah, she should keep I mean, her head down and do the job she was sent to do. I, I don't, you know, I don't pretend to be a, a strategist by any means, but I mean, as in someone <laughs> on the outside of looking at this, I just got a question when they're 
advisors and campaign strategists got together and said, hey, maybe we uh, should put a, a mailer together knowing that Kathy Klaus has done so much damage to the Hogan agenda in some facets. And right. um, yeah. and the Republicans just made fun of – I mean, look, I watched this unfold. We all did in real time, Mark. The yeah. Republicans were like, yeah. what the hell is this? This is hilarious. <laughs> She's not part of us. Yeah. And then the Democrats were no. like, what the hell is this? Why is she – why is she putting together a mailer and then having the party bosses pay for it? And yet, you know, they're not even investing in their own gubernatorial candidate. And then what, Ryan, oh man, what that demonstrates is that the same people who came up with that harebrained scheme were the same people that were running Mac McFadden's campaign and Joan Carter Conway's campaign and Mac Middleton's campaign. It's mm. the staffers in the Senate President's office that came up with that, and that should put to rest. <laughs> For good, the notion that they have any idea about what to do in electoral politics. Well, and sometimes it, it, in, I, I could respect it more if I if I even thought it was a good strategic move, even if I detested yeah. what it what, what it did. I could respect it if I thought it was a good strategy. It's an awful strategy. I I, I don't know. I I mean, we haven't seen the outcome yet. We haven't seen. The results, but uh, if she wins, it'll be in spite of that piece of mail, not because. Yeah, in spite of it. I, 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 here and there. Yeah, I agree. And and look, the Eastern Shore is a tough place, and Mac Mathias is one of those longtime beloved Democrats on the Eastern Shore. And look, for you know, in fairness, he had a picture with. I cut him a little. I cut him a little more slack. I mean, I I think that that's a guy. Look, you got to do what you got to do in your district, and I respect mm-hmm. that. That's true. Like Tip O'Neill said, oh, sure. all politics are local. You got to do what you've got to do in your district. Where I draw the line is when you use Democratic caucus resources to send mail of that sort. If Kathy Klausmeyer wanted to come up with a harebrained scheme to pretend that she's a Republican, yeah, she ought to do it money. on her own dime, and not with the caucus. I hear you. Money. Because I yeah. guarantee you that's not what people gave to the caucus for. Well, you know, and look, um, I, I could we could talk about, and this would take us another hour, but we I I got to go soon, and I I got to tell yeah. you, you know, look, you look at the the comptroller's race, and Mike Miller desperately wanted to find uh, a Mike Miller <laughs> type of person to run against Peter Francho, and he spent time yep. talking to. Um, People that uh, you probably know and I probably know, and then look when it was I, all confirmed. Full disclosure, I did too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, think about. I mean, it. I, you have the Senate president running a candidate, and they they and what I like about Peter is that he doesn't buy into that stuff. I mean, they're constantly yep. under undercutting Francho, and I'm not saying that. Democrats are always thrilled with Francho, and and I, I think right. that you you could you could have some gripes with Francho on the the jealous issue and not backing the party, and the same thing with um, Ike Ike Leggett here in Montgomery County, um, and that's yeah. a fair gripe, I get it, but still, Peter Francho takes it to the establishment, and it's it's fun to watch. Yeah. Um, Mike Miller, and if we can get anything out of this conversation, it is that. Establishment politics are being uprooted. Mike Miller is going to come away limping this next session, and he's going to have a lot less power than what he thought. I mean, his his tenure is going to last. He's got I no think, one. It's a, the, the the analogy that I'll say, and then we'll close is that is that this is like when 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 the townspeople came to the door to kind of haul you out. 
there would be someone standing at the door that would ward them off with a pitchfork or a gun or something. <laughs> All of the people that would stand in the door and defend Miller were either defeated or retired. Go down the list. Ed Casemeyer, Mac McFadden, Mac Middleton, Joan Carter Conway, Ed DeGrange. They're all gone. There's nobody that's going to throw themselves in front of the truck that's trying to run Miller over, and he knows it. That's why my suspicion is he won't be there long. Um, you might be right. I mean, who knows? He's already got a Miller's billion. Miller's a smart in guy. I don't think he's going to do another four years. Um, I, I, I really don't. He He is – Truly, the godfather of Maryland politics. I mean, he is—he yep. has lasted through uh, decades of of Maryland, uh, true and true. Um, I think he has a good heart. I really believe that. I think he has a servant's heart. Yeah. I don't. I don't think he's a bad guy. I. I do think that I when you're in pol- I, I think when you're in politics for so long, um, and and I've never been in an elected office, but I can tell you just from watching it from the outside, I think you become jaded. And then you start to, I guess, lose insight of what this is all about. And he's been in what thirty six years. That's a long time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Man has grandkids. It's nothing clearer that someone has lost perspective than you name a building after yourself. Who has ever done that? You know, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you're still there. You're still alive. You're still going to work in a building named after you. Who else would do that? I mean, at least Cass Taylor lost, lost by seventy. I mean, at least <laughs> Cass Taylor lost by seventy-two votes, and then he had a building. Right. But uh, you know, That's come right. on. But, but well, Mark, um, it's been a real pleasure. I love talking politics, and I love getting into the nitty-gritty about about Maryland. And so, um, and, and I really appreciate you doing this. And I and I know that we don't sure. know each other, but we'll have to sit down over a beer and and have a conversation, Definitely. man. Let's let's link up and do this again. I would love that, and um, we'll get Foxwell in here and a couple of other people. Yes, that'd okay. be awesome. All right, do man. an election well, night thing like you guys did in the primary. You know what? We, we're talking about that upcoming and trying to figure out how that's all going to work, and I, we're, we're going to make it work, um, and so we're, we're putting together that. Um, so um, maybe you can come on and be on a, like a guest yeah. panel for that. So we're, we're, yeah. you know, we have a couple Count months, and in. we're just trying to – we're going to get the logistics. So – all right, my friend. Well, thank you for All doing right. this. Thanks a lot, Ryan. And, uh, okay, you. well, you have a great week. All right, take care. Bye-bye. All right, see you later. Bye. Okay, that was Mark McLaren. He is the SEIU political director um, here for the S- local um, 500. Good guy. Uh, we had a great conversation, so uh, we're going to go ahead and end on that. Thank you, everybody. We went over our time of an hour, but fantastic conversation, as always. Find us on a minor detail.com, blogtalkradio.com, a minor detail. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Uh, working on getting on Google Play. And uh, we are on a couple of the other podcast distributors, um, Castbox. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next time.